Well, good evening. We are continuing in our series of studies in the book of Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, and uh, we are in chapter 5 and in verse 2, where we left off last week. Now, in last week's study together, we saw that it was the couple in this love poem, it was their, their honeymoon night, and so we talked about love and intimacy and romance, and as is often the case, passion leads to problems. Because there's one thing that's true. When you get close to someone, very close to someone, you start to see them for who they really are. And you start to grow closer to them in a way where you have conflict, or perhaps you become indifferent to that person, or you are not as grateful for them because you're familiar with them. And, and isn't it interesting in, the, in this ideal love poem, this ideal romance in the scripture, isn't it interesting that rather than presenting to us some ideal romance that has no problems whatsoever, we get to chapter 5 right after the honeymoon, and the first thing we have to deal with is their first, maybe not their very first, but certainly their first major problem. I think that should be encouraging to anyone in a relationship to know that problems are actually opportunities. They are opportunities to grow. They're opportunities to, to learn about a person. And they challenge our character and how we deal with conflict. If you never have any conflict, then you don't know really how you're going to deal with conflict. And one of the most important things, I think, for a couple who's planning to get married is to have had some sort of a conflict and have been able to resolve it. Because if you've had conflict or a problem and you're able to resolve it, it speaks to the fact that after you get married, you'll be able to resolve your problems. You know, it's, it's almost like in premarital counseling, what we're trying to give the couple is a toolkit. And you have your toolkit with all your necessary tools should there be a problem. But if you never get to use them and you really don't know how to resolve problems, then when the first problem comes along, you're not going to be able to deal with it properly. So in our account this evening in chapter 5, we see the next significant event following their wedding night was their first problem. Now, this romance, again, it's obviously an ideal, but it's not a fantasy. It's realistic. And if we're going to be realistic, we're going to find out that problems are a part of life. And as a model, it presents problems, but it also, thankfully, provides the principles for solving them. And I think that's the great strength of this book, because it does present things that we will have to deal with in life, but it gives us the solutions. Now, this event probably didn't take place right away, but sometimes, sometime after the honeymoon. And again, uh, generally, when you first get married, uh, you don't have the huge problems that, you know, you have years later or even maybe many years later, uh, but you do have issues. You do have conflict. So we're going to see that this evening, and uh, let's open in a word of prayer as we open our hearts to all that the Lord would speak to our hearts about relationships this evening. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask in the name of Jesus that you would give us an understanding of not only the problems we may encounter in relationships, but the solutions, the opportunities they bring to us to be able to solve problems and grow through them. 
And may we be able to resolve the problems and the challenges and the relational issues in our own lives and relationships. And may we learn from those experiences so that we can continue to grow. And, and Lord, if we might, may we only have to resolve one type of problem once. There'll be many different problems and many different types of problems, but may we learn from our experiences so we don't have to repeat in some type of a vicious cycle the same process over and over again. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so as is the case and has been the case, uh, Justin's going to bring up chapter 5, verse 2. I believe it's on the screen. And we're going to go through this translation that I'm using by Dr. S. Craig Glickman, very similar to the NIV. A little bit, I think, a little bit better and a little bit more helpful in honestly just being able to understand this poem. Poetry is very difficult to understand to begin with. But this particular type of poem is so foreign to us in, in our culture that without a good translation that helps us to know who is speaking and to whom, and without the vocabulary and the background and the history and the culture, you could easily read this book and be baffled. And that's not at all what we want. So I'm trying to do my best to help you to, by giving you an understanding of what's being communicated and why. Okay, so we are going from passion to problems, and we see in verses 2 through 3, we read, this is the bride now speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem. Now, for those of you here for the first time, the daughters of Jerusalem are like the chorus. They're, they're the people around the couple. You have the bridegroom and the bride, and you have the daughters of Jerusalem, and oftentimes they'll speak to the daughters of Jerusalem, like the chorus, and as a consequence, we gain an understanding of what's being thought about and what's going on in the heart and the mind of our main characters. Also, there are times where the bride or the groom will, typically the bride, will speak to themselves in, in soliloquy so that we know what they're thinking. That, that's a, that's a, a common thing in poetry, but also especially in plays. And this is a play. So you'll see that throughout our study. But this evening, it's to the daughters of Jerusalem that the bride speaks and uh, they're going to speak back, and then she's going to speak to them again. So the bridegroom is missing at this time, and we'll see why. Let's look at verses 2 through 3. The bride writes or says, I was asleep, but my heart was awake. The sound of my beloved knocking opened to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one, for my hair is filled with dew, my hair with damp of night. And then she says of herself, I had put off my tunic, must I put it on again? I had washed my feet, must I soil them again? And this is describing for us the indifference, and it's hard to imagine given all of the romantic poetry we've read up to this point in the first four chapters, but the indifference that has come into the heart of the bride toward the bridegroom. Now, it's not major problems, but there is an indifference in the sense that there was at one point where she couldn't live without him. You know, she, she couldn't, she was longing for him every moment of every hour of every day. And, and now she's in bed, obviously, and she's comfortably in bed. She, she was asleep, and, and he came to her one night, uh, full of love for her, even though he had been working late, which is described for us. And he addresses her with an abundance of affectionate terms. He had called her sister on their wedding night, which again seems odd to us, but in this culture is a term of affection. He'd called her darling during their courtship. And now dove and perfect one are new terms of affection. So what you have here 
is the bridegroom coming to the bride, seeking with a heart that's amorous, seeking to be loving and seeking to spend time uh, with her, and yet she is already asleep, she's tired, uh, doesn't say she had a headache, but she's not necessarily in the mood to get out of bed, she's already in bed, asleep, and, you know, washed your feet, and of course, when you got up in the ancient world and stepped on the floors in those days, then you had to wash your feet again, so you know, she's like, I already, I'm already in bed, I'm already, uh, as it says here, took off my tunic, I, I, I'm, I'm going to sleep, it's late, I'm, you know, I'm not interested at this time in spending time together, I just want to go to sleep. That, it seems to be what, what she's communicating, and she responded apathetically. Now, it's hard to imagine that people so in love could reach a place where they're apathetic toward one another, indifferent. But I think anyone who's honest with themselves knows that familiarity sometimes breeds contempt. And sometimes apathy is the result of just taking a person for granted. And clearly, this isn't a major problem here. But what we do see is that she responded apathetically when compared to her previous longing for him. Back in chapter 3, I mean, as I've said, she just was longing for him every moment of every day, and now she'd rather just go to sleep. Keep in mind, though, that the opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. It's indifference. And I think sometimes we forget that, that when you really don't care about someone, I'm not saying she didn't care about him, but when you don't care about someone, that's far worse than actually being angry and wanting to strangle them. (laughs) Not literally, but... You know, when you, when you feel like you, you are angry with someone and you, you may not hate them, but you have very strong feelings toward them, it, it means you care about them and you're angry about something. But when you just don't care, you're indifferent, you're apathetic. I mean, that, that really is the opposite of love. It really is. You know, before the wedding, she couldn't even sleep for her longing for him. Now she's forgotten why she prepared for bed to begin with. She is just being indifferent. And here's what we learn. The bride recounts uh, her, her lover's response to her indifference. So look at verses 4 through 5. She tells us, My beloved, that's the bridegroom, My beloved withdrew his hand from the door, and my feelings were aroused for him. I rose to open to my beloved, and my hand dripped with myrrh, and my fingers with flowing myrrh upon the handles of the bolt. Now, again, poetic language, hard to understand exactly what's happening here. I'll try to break it down for you. This is a recounting of the lover's response to her indifference. He simply left, really, a love note. He left fragrant myrrh at the door of her room. Perfume, if you will. It's funny because guys are probably not always so original, right? I mean, we, when it comes to Valentine's Day gifts or birthday gifts or Christmas gifts or those types of things, um, they generally fall into categories, especially early on when you first get married, you know, There's the chocolates, until you get in trouble because she says, if I eat all these chocolates, I'm going to gain weight, right? There's flowers, you know, there's perfume, right? There's jewelry. There tends to be a few categories. Well, this this bridegroom essentially is saying, uh, okay, you're not interested in me coming in the room. Okay, that's fine. But he leaves the gift that he had for her, and it was fragrant myrrh. It was a perfume. Notice that instead of being angry, he expresses affection. It's amazing how when you simply express affection, when someone's maybe not being sensitive or they're being indifferent, you show affection. You can snap a person out of it. 
And that's ultimately what you want to do for each other in a romantic relationship, in a marriage, when someone's just in a bad mood or they're just not interested or they just, it's been a tough day and they just don't even want to talk. Affection is better than anger, right? Anger's not going to help. It's going to make things worse. But showing affection, that can help a person come out of themselves. And that's the idea. So rather than taking his gift and putting it in his pocket and say, well, I'll be darned if she's going to get this, won't even open the door. No, rather he leaves it behind. He's willing to be affectionate despite her lack of sexual desire, despite her lack of amorous feelings for him, despite her interest in him as her husband. Now, anger, we know this, anger cannot force love no more than lustful desires can. Anger cannot force love no more than lustful desires can. His anger would have only confirmed her ungrateful attitude toward him. It would not have dispelled it. So, sometimes we can make things worse. If someone feels that we're being insensitive, and in response we're insensitive, then we only sort of prove the case, right? Wouldn't it be better when when one of us in a marriage or a relationship is failing to be the person that they're called to be and supposed to be, if the other person doubled down and became more of the person they're supposed to be, that's what it means to lift one another up. That is, that's what it means to be a team, to be a partnership. Oftentimes, though, what happens in relationships, one person's having a bad day, the other person decides to take it out on the person, or it goes back and forth, and both people become uh, different than they're called to be. So when one person is failing, the other person needs to step up. And that's how successful relationships are maintained, when one person fails. And believe me, there are plenty of times when one person in the relationship is not the person they're supposed to be. That's humanity. That's realistic. That's life. But if both people in the relationship turn their backs on one another or decide to become incredibly selfish or insensitive at the same time, then the relationship, at least as far as the love relationship becomes, it becomes, it really becomes paralyzed. And so the good news here is that he did the better thing. He was the, be- the bigger person, the better person. And so his anger, again, if he had become angry, would have only kind of made things worse, confirmed her ungrateful attitude toward him. And listen, as I said, anger cannot force love no more than lustful desires can. You, you have to just be patient with one another. Patience is a virtue, right? Often, what is it? Patience, I have to remember this. I don't remember. I didn't write it down. It'll come to me. Uh, oh, patience is a virtue. Get it if you can. It's sometimes found in women and never found in men. That's something like that. And it's supposed to pick on men. But if we're going to be honest, guys, patience isn't always our strong suit, right? But this is the ideal lover. He's the, he's the one who loves like Christ. These are symbols of Christ in the church, as we'll see when we get to the end of our study. We'll talk some about that. So, yes, incredibly patient. His patience showed his exceptional character. And his reaction to her helped to reawaken her love for him. And that's what being patient with someone will do. And her response, or excuse me, his response, aroused her feelings and caused her to rise and receive him. After she said she wouldn't want to get out of bed, she did anyway, of course, because as it says, her heart, her soul went out to him. You know, her her feelings were aroused for him. She felt bad and, and she went, but he had already left and left this perfume. 
So now she probably feels even worse. But the bride recounts her search for her lover. So in verses 6 through 8, she tells us this, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul had gone out to him when he spoke, and I sought him but did not find him. I called out to him, but he did not answer me. Now, the watchmen who go about the city or go about in the city found me. They struck me. They bruised me. They took my shawl from upon me, those guardians of the walls. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, as to what you will tell him, tell him that I am faint with love. So she's looking for him, and he's left already. Uh, not in a huff, just respected her space. And in the time from the moment he knocked at the door to the time he left, she got up, she came to the door, and he was gone. And as she begins to look for him, things don't go very well. She opened the door too late. He had already gone. Her soul missed his voice, and she felt the void of his absence. And so what do the watchmen do, the the guards? uh, She's married to the king, by the way. So the watchmen mistake her for a criminal. Somebody who's not supposed to be up around the palace or around the, uh, the uh, area around the palace at this time of night. By the way, these watchmen were mentioned once before in chapter 3, verse 3. And that was when she was having a dream about seeking him and not being able to find him. In the dream, they were far more helpful to her. But now, they honestly mistake her for uh, the wrong kind of person. And rather than helping her, they at least initially struck her, they grabbed her, they bruised her, they, they thought she was there for the wrong purposes. But one of the things she tells the daughters of Jerusalem is that her love for him had been rekindled. And, and by the way, um, I don't know how many of you guys build fires, maybe you, you do a fire pit, we have a fireplace, I also have a fire pit, and so sometimes when you're making a fire, uh, it looks like the fire is going out. And so what you do is, you know, you add some more fuel or you add some oxygen or you fan the flames and the fire is rekindled. And you you would have never believed that a a roaring fire would have come out of just those embers and and, and a few remaining logs. But it it happens when you add air. Uh, I have a bellows for the fireplace. And when you put air on a fire, it's amazing. It almost immediately rekindles. And that's exactly a good description of what happened in her heart. But it sometimes takes an unfortunate circumstance to awaken our cold hearts. You know, difficulties, even sickness. These things often heal grudges between lovers and friends. You know, it's one of the things I think, especially as I'm a little older now, one of the things that I'm very, very serious about is not allowing relationships to remain strained. Uh, not just with my wife, not just in marriage, but in all relationships, in family relationships. You know, I've said goodbye to people in my family, people I love, and, and you probably have too, even recently. And because of that, it's important to remember, you know, we're, we're not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know whether we'll be here tomorrow. We don't know if our loved ones will be here tomorrow. We don't know if we'll have another opportunity to express how we feel and to take advantage of the opportunities with friends and family members even spouses. And so it's very childish to become, you know, petulant and sort of selfish about life and just cut off communication because you're angry or you're disappointed because you just don't know. We hear of tragedies all the time. I'm not saying it to scare anybody, but let's be honest. I mean, life is like that. So I have become very careful about 
when I greet somebody or say goodbye to someone who I may not see for a little while, making sure that I've said what needs to be said. Uh, someone who's older. You know, I, I'm sure all of us visit elderly people. I do on a regular basis. And I, every time I see someone like that or someone who's elderly who attends our services and maybe they're in poor health, and I think to myself, who knows? Who knows? This may be the last time I have an opportunity on this side of heaven to greet them and talk to them and share with them. So I think it's important that, especially for us, if we're going to behave like adults, <laughs> that we realize there's no good reason to cut off communication, really. I mean, if it's within your power to get along with someone or to communicate how you feel, you should do it. And you shouldn't wait because relationships are not guaranteed tomorrow. They simply are not. So that's some of the things I, I, I can only share with you from wisdom and experience. I'm glad to say that uh, seldom can I describe a relationship I've had with regrets. Uh, I, I've, I've been careful in all of my relationships, especially with those who are older, to make sure that I say the things that need to be said so that I don't think back and say, oh, I only wish that I had communicated before that person was no longer here how much they meant to me. So a good reason to simply be kind and loving. Amen? All the time. Okay, so it is true that these things oftentimes will rekindle our love for someone, and especially in a marriage. And uh, she's saying this to the people. Look, these women, you know, if you, if you see him, tell him that I'm faint with love. Tell him that I love him very much. And it's good because, remember, the problem was indifference, but now that has gone away, the love has been rekindled. Let's take a moment and make the application to our relationship with the Lord. Then we'll get to the second section that we're going to cover this evening. Uh, the first is in indifference. And I think it's important to realize that Jesus used the relationship between the bridegroom and the bride to describe his relationship with us. We're the bride, he's the bridegroom. And it can so often be said of us as Christians, as children of God, that we become indifferent to God's goodness and his many blessings. And if you're honest with yourself, it's probably happened a lot. Where you just sort of take it for granted. God's love, his mercy, his grace, his salvation. You, your attitude towards God is like, well, you know, whatever, you know. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, maybe I won't go to church tonight. And uh, you know what, I don't need to be there on time. And well, you know, you, you sort of have this attitude towards God and the presence of God that becomes lack, lackadaisical. You become indifferent. Now, I want you to know that the bridegroom is a picture of Christ. And did you notice Christ's character? He's not condemning. He's not angry. He, he, he doesn't make things uh, about him. He's still about us because that's how a lover loves the other person. And God so loves us that he still makes it about us. And so you see the perfume, you see the patience, you see the character, you see the appropriate response to indifference on the part of God, that easily describes what happens when we're indifferent to Christ. He patiently waits for our love for him to be rekindled. And he allows circumstances in our lives to be used to rekindle our love. And sometimes that includes difficulties and trials and sickness, tragedies even. And those things happen and we find ourselves drawing near to God. And then we wonder, oh God, why? Why do these things happen in my life? Why are there trials? Why are there difficulties? And yet those things really are working for us. God uses them to draw us to himself. 
Now, I know it's hard to understand that sometimes, but it's still true. And I think if everything went perfectly every day, we'd probably be pretty indifferent towards God and his love. Because as human beings, that's who we are. Maybe not everyone, but I think most of us would be somewhat indifferent to God's goodness. So one of the things we see in this picture is God's love for us when we're indifferent, that he still seeks after us, that he's still there for us, and that he loves us. Now, we're not going to get to the, uh, the reuniting of the bridegroom and the, and the bride this evening. We'll pick that up next week. But it's important to, to analyze and study the interaction here, not just from a romantic standpoint, but from our relationship with Christ and what this romantic relationship symbolizes. Okay, so now we get to the second of the two things we're going to talk about tonight, and it's ingratitude. See, there's, there's indifference, but there's also ingratitude. And every marriage will have problems. Every romantic relationship will have problems. Every relationship, family, friend, whatever, will have problems. But as far as marriage is concerned, a successful marriage will work through those problems. A good relationship works through the problems, and you come out on the other side better for it. Now, I I can use a simple analogy. Uh, When you go to the gym and you're trying to build muscle, you lift weight that's heavy. The reason you lift the weight is simply to break down the muscle tissue, to build it up. And as we break down the muscle tissue, it grows back and it grows back stronger. It's better for the challenge. Now, that's a simple thing we do when we work out. But there are many areas of life where when you're challenged, you grow. It's that simple. The challenge brings growth. And every marriage will have challenges, problems. But as the marriage works through these problems and these challenges, it grows. It becomes better. It can become bitter or it can become better. And better is the goal. Now, ingratitude was at the root of this woman's indifference. His patient love transformed her indifference into appreciation. I'm going to repeat that. His patient love transformed her indifference into appreciation. And that's what God's patient love does for us. And that's what love, when we're patient with others, will do for those who are perhaps ungrateful. Those who perhaps are indifferent. They'll begin to appreciate us because we're patient. Love is patient. Love is kind, right? It's described by Paul in this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But love can be disappointed, yes, but it should never not be patient or kind. And, of course, the bridegroom becomes a wonderful example of this. Now, keep in mind, the the bridegroom could have gone off somewhere to pout for a while. That's not what he did, by the way, obviously. But through patience, he defeated the opportunity for wounded pride. It's so easy to become inwardly focused and start to pout and start to feel sorry for ourselves. And, okay, she's going to be like that? Well, you wait and see what I do the next time she wants to talk to me and tell me this story about her day. You know, and, and, and how foolish and how immature that is. And does it really help your life any? Does it really make things better in your marriage? Does it really, really bless you? No. It actually makes things a whole lot worse, hurts the person you profess your love for and you're supposed to love the most, and it hurts you. See, this is really a question of maturity. More than anything else, relationships come down to maturity. And unfortunately, many relationships are very immature. And uh, I think we see that all too often. So while still apart, they are clearly moving toward reconciliation. Even though they haven't reconnected, 
in their hearts, they're moving toward reconciliation. And that should be happening in your heart when there's been a break in communication. You should be growing toward reconciliation, not to being selfish and bitter and impatient and sitting there folding your arms and saying, well, you know, I'm really hurt. Well, the woman of the court, they question her about her lover, and then she responds in verses 9 through 16. But let's look first at verse 9. This is what they say to the bride, who's asked them uh, if they find, she said, if you find my beloved as to what you will tell him, tell him I am fain with love. They ask, what is your beloved, in verse 9, more than another lover, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another lover that you so adjure us? So they're wondering, well, why do you feel this way? Why are you faint with love? What's so great about your husband? Like, what's so great about your lover? What is it that would make you seek him like this? Now, there's a lot there we can get to in terms of spiritual things. But before we get there, you know, one of the things I think we have to avoid And it's going to be a real challenge for some of us. But, you know, we get frustrated with the people we love the most. Friends, family, co-workers maybe, spouses certainly, children absolutely, parents definitely. But it's important, and I think we need to take this to heart, that we, we don't take advantage of the opportunity to paint them publicly in a negative light. It's not a good idea to get into the habit of letting everyone know your every little frustration with a person, whoever that person is, whatever the relationship, whether it's your boss or a coworker or someone who works for you or the person you're married to or your children or your parents or someone else. It's better, honestly, to take those feelings to God and then resolve them with the person than it is to talk to everyone in the world. By, by a large margin... I think it's vitally important that you understand that publicizing how you feel and your frustrations, are only, it's only going to do damage to the relationship. Now, there are these, I've never posted on anything online, I don't do that, uh, maybe on a couple of technical sites when I was trying to solve a computer problem, but, but nothing personal, okay? But like, there's these postings, and I hear about them on the news where someone's having a problem with a family member. So they post exactly how they feel about the family member. Now, maybe it's anonymous. Nobody knows who they are. And uh, basically they say, is there something wrong with me? Is this my fault? And they want everyone to comment on how they feel hurt. And, you know, is this woman a bridezilla? Or my, is my mother-in-law being fair? And, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, first of all, who cares what anyone thinks, especially people you don't even know, right? But, but... Also, isn't it also true that these are the kind of things we should probably keep to ourselves? Have enough respect for the people you supposedly love to keep that to yourself. So when you catch yourself saying, well, you know, oh, my husband, well, oh, my wife, oh, you know, well, my parents, my kids, maybe stop and don't do that. Seriously, maybe, maybe get out of, the, out of the habit of doing that because... I'm not saying you have to paint these pictures of your spouse as they walk on water and they're perfect and everything, but maybe just don't take an, an advantage of an opportunity to paint them in a negative light with other people. Uh, there are times when you may need to talk about a problem you're having with a pastor or a leader or a trusted friend or family member. That's not what I'm talking about. 
But just being exasperated and sort of saying, oh, my kids, oh, my parents, oh, my, my husband. It's not productive. It harms the relationship. And as someone said to me a long time ago, you know, well, it's actually was my grandmother. She said, be careful not to talk about another person's spouse. Because long after they make up, they'll still remember what you said. You know, actually, she had a much more colorful way of saying it. But the words won't really come out of my mouth in church. But I will tell you that she made it very clear that you shouldn't talk about someone because at the end of the day, when they make up, you're going to be the bad guy. So I'm learning a lot of things in life. But one of the things I'm learning is saying less. (laughs) Because sometimes... We get ourselves in trouble by sharing our opinions and our feelings a little too liberally. Well, I love the fact that that's not what's happening here. She only has good things to say. She says to the daughters of Jerusalem, uh, initially, I'm faint with love. And they, and they want to know, wow, you're faint with love. Well, tell us about him. Why do you feel this way? And, and it's amazing because she only really has good things to say. Look at verses 10 through verse 16. My beloved is dazzlingly ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. His head is pure gold, his locks, palm leaves, black as a raven. His eyes are like doves behind, or excuse me, beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are a bed of balsam, a raised bed of spices. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. His hands are cylinders of gold set with jewels. His abdomen is a plate of ivory covered with sapphires. His legs are alabaster pillars set upon pedestals of fine gold. His appearance is like Lebanon choices the cedars. His mouth is sweetness and all of him is wonderful. This is my beloved and this is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. It's beautiful language. It has a deeper meaning, which we'll break down in just a second. But obviously it's very positive speech. Now, I am not a believer in the power of positive thinking. I do not believe that by just thinking something, uh, it's going to happen. That's pretty ridiculous, right? Uh, There are some people that believe that. We were watching a show the other night, my wife and I, and that was the whole premise of the show, that if you want something, you just think about it and it'll happen. That's really weird, okay, because it's not true. Terrible things happen. And just because you want something good to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen just because you think about it. However, however, if you go around in life thinking negatively about yourself and others all the time, you create an environment of negativity. Okay? Yeah, I mean, you create a negative environment. Now, the inverse is true as well. If you think positively think on those things which are praiseworthy, lovely, and excellent. If you're a very positive person, it may not bring things into existence that you want, but one thing it will do, it will create a very positive environment in your relationships. So if you're a very negative person, you're going to tend to have negative experiences, and if you're positive, you're going to tend to have positive experiences, not because you're creating anything by your positivity, but because you are a positive person, you're going to attract positive people, and you're going to sort of dispel the negativity. There's, that's not a metaphysical thing. That's just reality. And I know people that are so negative that everything around them is bad. And then there's people that are positive and things around them, well, they have problems like anybody else, but they approach things in a positive way. 
And I, again, as I get older, I'm trying to create a positive environment around me. I don't, I don't want to live in negativity. So if I'm watching something on the news or reading something and it's starting to create in me negativity, I turn it off. And it's not that I want to be ignorant, but I, I, I want to be aware of what's going on, but I want to be ignorant of evil things if I can help it. I don't want negativity in my life. There is plenty out there, believe me, we have to fend off of negative experiences. Why create more or add fuel to the fire? So again, I'm not being metaphysical. It's just the reality. So when she's asked about her lover, she takes the opportunity to be truthful, but also very positive and praising. She says he's extremely handsome, one in 10,000. That's what she says. And, and listen, uh, Her answer reveals her heart for him. It prepares her attitude for reconciliation. If your relationship with someone is strained and you approach it positively and you begin to think of the good things, as the Bible says, again, Paul talks about this in Philippians, think on that which is good, you know, which is praiseworthy, which is excellent, you know? Those are the things you're supposed to think on. Now, she says, he's handsome. One in 10,000. He had golden skin. He was Dark-haired, his eyes were soft and tender. He, he smelled good. That's always a nice thing. He was a good kisser, and he even had good breath. I remember back in the 70s, there was an obsession with breath. You know, people like certs and like Tic Tacs, and there was an obsession back in, you know, uh, in people having good breath. Well, I, I mean, I, I hope that's still the case because, you know, it's a nice thing. But he was always willing to gently hold her, and this may not come out, Immediately, but in the first part of verse 14, it says his hands are cylinders of gold set with jewels. Now, the idea is that she's describing the fact that he's always willing to gently hold her like a bracelet. That's the language that's being used. He was always willing to gently hold her. He was in good shape. Firm abs, strong legs, very tall, very dignified. And he spoke well. When it says his mouth is sweetness, it's not talking just about like kissing him. It's actually the things that come out of his mouth. He spoke well. He was full of praise and sweetness. He was never crude or crass with her. And because of that, she has nothing but good things to say about him to these daughters of Jerusalem. Now, a heart of ingratitude must be transformed to a heart of appreciation before reunion can take place. And that's what has happened. And I want you to know that they've had no contact and already her heart of ingratitude has been transformed into a heart of appreciation. So if you're holding on to bitterness and you're blaming another person for that bitterness, no, it's on you. You and I, we can allow our hearts to be transformed even if we're having no contact with the person we're at odds with. We need to change. We need to be the ones that change first. If you're going to change a situation, you need to be changed. And if you resist that, the situation will not change. And so after contemplation, she now confesses him to be a wonderful lover and a friend. Had she been grateful in the beginning, uh, well, she could not have been indifferent. See, indifference is a sign that you're not grateful for what you have. Count your blessings, right? How many times have we heard things like that? Count your blessings. You know, we tend to focus on the negative. Uh, As I get older, I'm trying to focus on the positive because there's lots to be thankful for. That's the little things. Like it was so cold last week and I was just so grateful that my furnace was working. And I kept thinking, what if it wasn't? I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you wake up in the middle of the night and it's cold in the house and you're thinking, what's going on? 
Yeah, think about that. It's not a fun experience. You call up the heating company, the first thing they say is like, even if you have a contract, well, you know there's a night differential. Oh, no, that's okay. I'll just freeze my rear end off until the morning, then I'll pay less. No, get over here, fix my furnace, you know. And, and listen, when your car starts in the morning, you don't think about it. When it doesn't, you do. So we need to kind of, you know, when you get up in the morning and you're still alive, it's a good day. You can get out of bed. There's people that wish they could get out of bed in the morning, right? I, I know I'm being a little comical, but I'm trying to make a point. If you start counting your blessings, the food you eat, the air you breathe, the environment you're in, the home you live in, the car you drive, the job you have, the friends that are around you, after a while, you're going to become incredibly thankful, and you won't be acting like this bride did in the beginning of this chapter. So after contemplation, she now confesses him to be the most wonderful lover and friend. Listen, ingratitude can cause us to be indifferent to even the most wonderful person. You need to be careful. Your relationship is a reflection of, of you as well. And so if, if you're indifferent and you're ungrateful for the person that you've married or the person you're in a relationship with, uh, you can transform that relationship, at least from your side, simply by being transformed. That is, into the image of Christ, to the person that God has called you to be. Now, of course, ingratitude also describes many times how we feel towards God, who's blessed us so much. And as we compare this to our relationship with Christ, let's remember that truth. Let's remember how grateful we should be towards God's many blessings. You know, they say an attitude of gratitude, right? Being thankful. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's one of the forms of prayer, actually, uh, that we often neglect. And maybe if you're having a hard time being grateful, if you're having a hard time being thankful for all God's many blessings, maybe start with, in the morning, Lord, thank you. And come up with a couple of things. shouldn't be too difficult. As I said, I I can thank God for my my car starting or my, my heat being on or the lights work. I mean, listen, it doesn't take much to be grateful. And so in your relationship with Christ, make sure that you don't find yourself indifferent to his love or ungrateful for all of his many blessings. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love and what this chapter shows us, that even the most wonderful lover can be neglected or despised if our hearts aren't in the right place. And so certainly we have been guilty of this with you. So Lord, forgive us. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. Help us to be grateful, thankful, Not to be indifferent, but to show our love, not just for you, but for all those that love us in return. May we be the kinds of people that are good examples of your love for us. To all those around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.